It is Easter morning in our story, and the crowds have dispersed. Very few people can be found near the tomb early that morning. Tom Tewell was our Holy Week preacher. He mentioned in passing in one of his sermons that whenever crowds are mentioned in the Bible, they are usually grumbling or complaining about something, and mostly the line for the nine o'clock service, for example. And yet, on this day when Christians are especially expected to attend worship and celebrate the greatest feast of our faith, we prepare for crowds. We worry about having enough services, enough parking, enough seats. We listen to some of our friends say they're staying away because they don't like the crowds or finding somewhere else to go, often sneering at people who they think only come to worship at Christmas and Easter. Now, if you're one of those people who, in spite of the crowds, because this is your church, the place you worship among the people of God, your parish, if you're one of those people who want to celebrate here, then good for you and many blessings upon you. But if you're also someone who is here rarely, for whatever reason, but something tradition or family or curiosity or love of pageantry and music or perhaps even a stirring of hope that there might be something here for jaded old you, if you only come occasionally for whatever reason, welcome. Welcome because with Peter we truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. So welcome, and it is good to see all of you. Crowds at best are a mixed blessing. Jonathan Haidt, in a marvelous book called The Righteous Mind, has written about and identified something he calls hiving. He says we become, at least 10% of the time, we become like bees. And he thinks that experiences of hives like a football game or a concert, or even sometimes church, trigger a kind of communal awareness. And with it, perhaps trigger for us the kind of altruism, a capacity to care for and about others, and so on. There's a, a marketer guru, marketing guru, called Scott Goodson. And he's written a book called Uprising. It's about how to bring change. He's mostly focused on selling things. But he also speaks a lot about cultural movements, he looks at the power of the Arab Spring, the Tea Party, and the Occupy movement, along with the rebranding of Pampers and Volkswagen. He writes about uh, the swarm effect, almost like the hive thing. He talks about the swarm effect, he says, because movements, particularly those fueled by today's social media, tend to behave in the way a swarm of insects does. A swarm moves in one direction as a group, and although it has no leader, it is capable of changing direction quickly to avoid a threat or pursue an opportunity. Now, I fear that I am less sanguine than these chaps about the benefits of crowds, although I certainly enjoy being in a big crowd cheering for my team or a big crowd enjoying a concert, those kinds of things. But I'm aware there are those who warn about the dangers of crowds, and particularly the danger of losing a sense of self in a crowd, becoming subject to manipulation and groupthink and becoming quite dangerous as a result. Edwin Friedman was a rabbi and systems expert with whom I worked for a few years before his death. And he, rather than talking of hiving, he talks about herding. 
And he says the most important ramification of the herding phenomenon for leadership is its counter-revolutionary effect. In order to be inclusive, he says, the herding family will wind up adopting an appeasement strategy towards its most troublesome members while sabotaging those with the most strength to stand up to the troublemakers. See, this herding thing kind of reduces us to a lowest common denominator very often. If you've ever been in an organization where the person at the head of it, the boss of an organization, is really concerned that everybody get along and everybody be happy, everybody essentially be a herd, then that person can be rightly called a peacemonger. And, and when there's a peacemonger at the head of an organization, chaos reigns in the organization because there's no clarity of self from the leader. James Allison, another of our former Holy Week preachers here and a theologian, once described what he called Nuremberg worship. He said he could have talked about football matches or celebrity raves or cults or initiation hazing and so on, but he chose the rather obvious uh, image of Nuremberg. And he describes, in effect, groupthink and manipulation that can and does flow easily from shared crowd experience. He describes the mechanisms of the crowds such that people who think they're having a ex spiritual experience, almost spiritual experience with the Fuhrer, find themselves after that experience looking at Jews just a little differently. And it's not pretty. And it's a function of this herding thing that can go on with crowds. And yet, this is exactly the kind of spiritual high experience that many of us really would like to have, which many of us seek, and which, honestly, we're more likely to find in a harmless way, in a fabulous way, at a Tina Turner concert. So, <laughs> so whatever brings you here today, I want you to remember that this collection of people is a collection of people who've come to faith individually and are founding an ever-growing sense of self and have been given the gift, not of crowd, but of community. What's happening here is the same thing we do every week. We are being turned or oriented toward that which is of ultimate worth. Worthship is about what really matters in and for life. And in our turning, we may or may not be granted the gift of a heightened spiritual experience. And if we are, we say thank you. But we will most assuredly find and notice the effects in our lives of this spiritual practice of worship today, and even more so if it is regular, as we find ourselves having thought about and been turned toward what really matters, we find ourselves living more faithfully, more trustingly, more courageously, more generously, more daringly, and even more lovingly than we once imagined possible. Our telling and enacting the story of what really matters, the story of trust in God, the story centered in the story of Jesus, is certainly a heightened telling today with glorious flowers and gorgeous music, appropriate for the telling of the story of the greatest feast of our year. But at heart, what we're doing today is the same thing as every week, telling the story. Today, the story of some women first, and then other disciples, discovering one by one 
that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy. We're not creating an experience of crowds in the hope that we will have an experience or be mightily impressed. We're telling the story of what really matters to us as individuals who are given the gift of the community of faith. Community rather than crowds, the worship of a lifetime rather than a singular event. You wouldn't know this from many Christians. Many of our co-religionists, our brothers and sisters, speak as though this story of Jesus ended on Friday with his bloodshed and death, as though that was the whole point and purpose. To hear some tell it, the resurrection is like giving Jesus a pat on the head for a job well done in satisfying God's honor somehow and sparing us the same dreadful and much well-deserved fate. Now, this is clearly not the point of the story, and it's clearly nonsense. There are others who are interested in the story but find claims, any claims to resurrection, the story that Jesus was raised by God from the dead. And imagine dead man walking. They think that's just as nonsensical, just as idiotic. But really look at what's being claimed here in this story that John tells us. In the early morning, Mary Magdalene discovered that Jesus' tomb was empty. Others came and went, but she stayed, weeping. And the blows, she must have felt the blows just kept on coming. Jesus' trials, his shameful and bloody death, and now this dishonor and indignity of the body taken. But the story gives all kinds of clues and signals that something unusual is going on here. The disciples, we're told, don't understand the scriptures. That's why they go home. The angels in white are around. And Mary is addressed by someone she's supposed to be the gardener. In the resurrection, Jesus was not instantly recognizable. She didn't see him as Jesus until he called her by name. She recognized him, as in fact did all the disciples sooner or later. They recognized him in characteristic acts. Here, calling Mary by name. Her recognition came as she was named and known. In Matthew's account, the disciples are commissioned and sent given meaning and purpose, just as they had been when Jesus was with them before the cross. Luke famously tells of Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas on the road to Emmaus, and they find their hearts burning within them while they spoke of the Scriptures. And then they recognized him when, when he broke bread. They recognized him in the fellowship of the table. And John, too, in addition to this story of Mary, has stories of eating and fishing and the physicality of Jesus, whatever it looked like, when he offered and asked for, offered Thomas to touch his wounds. But here it is today, the first, Mary, knowing herself, understood and known as only Jesus could understand and know her. And she gives the earliest Christian witness that echoes down the ages, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And one by one, the disciples decide to trust that God who gave life in the first place has brought radically new life out of death. Later disciples, many of us, six 
new ones earlier this morning, later disciples mark that fundamental trust in God's grace, that faith or trust by being buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and coming up out of those waters raised to newness of life. No one, my friends, no one can be born for us. However many are present at our birth, and in the same way, no one can be born again for us. No one can be born again in our stead, however many witnesses it takes for any of us to make that leap of faith and imagine the unimaginable possibility. Imagine that God is trustworthy and live according to that trust. So no one can say in our place, yes. We're the only one who are beginning to perceive, beginning to see the Lord in those acts of knowing and being known, those acts of being touched and healed, those acts of being fed round the table and the breaking of bread, those times when our hearts burn within us as we hear the scriptures. No one can do that in our stead. And we have to say, yes, I will follow Jesus. Yes, this is my hope. Yes, this is the way of life. Yes, I believe, O God, help thou my unbelief. Yes, I want to be known and loved as deeply as Mary was known and loved. Yes, this self-giving love that I see in Jesus, this integrity is the way of life for me. And so, yes, credo, I believe. I put my whole trust in God's grace and love. Yes. And so if you want to say yes today, or if you want to renew your yes, go ahead. Join with all of us who in a few moments will renew our own covenant of trust, our baptismal covenant. And join not the crowd, but the community made up of those empowered by grace to stand singularly in this world for what is right and good and true, to stand against what is wrong and evil, to stand with those who are weak and despised, perhaps like Mary of Magdala, to stand against those herds, those crowds that are manipulated, that create victims, that give birth to violence, and which crucify Jesus, and say, yes, yes, I'm going to be someone who stands against that and for love, and be sure you tell someone that you did that. And you will find the gift of spiritual community waiting for you. That same community who year after year and with great hope and great joy proclaim, Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia.